This is the Illumina Genomics Podcast. Hello, and welcome to Episode 1 of the Illumina Genomics Podcast. I'm Paul Broman, and I'm a scientific liaison here at Illumina. Every podcast, I'll interview top scientists whose work in genomics is shaping the way we think about science and our world. Today, I'm talking with Dr. Ramunas Stepanowskis. He's director of the Single Cell Genomics Center at the Bigelow Laboratory for Ocean Sciences in East Boothbay, Maine. Ramunas is a world expert in applying single cell genomics techniques to the study of individual microbes from diverse environments. Ramunas, Thanks for joining us on the Illumina Genomics Podcast. Thank you for the opportunity. There are currently at least nine single-cell genomic centers worldwide, but the single-cell genomic center at Bigelow Laboratory for Ocean Sciences was the first of its kind, and it opened in 2009. Can you talk about the rationale for starting the single-cell genomic center? How did it start? Uh, it grew out from research needs in environmental microbiology. So um, back in 2005, I was hired by Bigelow Life Ocean Sciences as a young uh, senior research scientist and uh, I was interested in, in ecology of microbes in the oceans and uh, uh, subsurface and other environments and uh, it was obvious back then that the tools we have available quite limited. Right. It was not really possible to understand what uh, the vast majority of microbes are doing, what, even what kind of genes they contain. The available tools allowed us to either uh, employ cultivation, which is uh, uh, now we know is uh, working only on uh, fewer than a few percent uh, parts in most environments. The other option was uh, shorter metagenomics, which uh, is a powerful way to circumvent uh, the cultivation limitations, but uh, it was not allowing us to see how the individual genes fit together. So what you get is a soup of genes uh, that come from that community, uh, highly, uh, often very highly diverse, uh, compl complex community. So uh, the ability to read genomes, so the entire blueprint of an organism at a single cell level seemed to be a really uh, powerful way to tackle these challenges and uh, I had some experience in the past for using flow cytometry and uh, employing molecular tools in microbial ecology and uh, together with the collaborators at Bigelow Laboratory we figured we'd give it a shot and uh, uh, quite quickly we came up with the basic technology to achieve these uh, uh, goals and then uh, with the help of National Science Foundation and Department of Energy we'll build up uh, the technology and eventually the infrastructure for high throughput capacity to, to, to perform these studies uh, and the types of uh, questions that are addressed uh, using this infrastructure are also very diverse so they range from basic uh, microbial ecology evolution also into, into some practical questions like bioprospecting and uh, human health related uh, questions. So this is clearly a challenge in terms of technology and infrastructure, or at least it was when you started in 2009, and the single-cell genomics really helped to bridge that gap. Moving forward from 2017, do you believe that single-cell technology will become accessible to individual labs? Absolutely, yeah. So the uh, democratization of right. single-cell genomics is, is a word that uh, has been used for, for a while, and the uh, 
uh, I think it has to happen. It should happen. That's uh, that's the way science is going to benefit. Uh, technology still has to go quite long ways to develop the technology, the instruments that would allow that to be a benchtop single instrument workflow. As far as microbes go, as far as human single cell genomics or human single cell transcriptomics, that's already a reality. What aspects of microbial biology make microbes such difficult targets for single cell analysis? Yeah, so uh, microbes are a bit different. Uh, they are uh, different actually in multiple ways. <laughs> One is uh, uh, they are smaller. Their physical dimensions are not compatible with some, some of the uh, commercialized instruments. Another is uh, if we are thinking of uh, RNA sequencing, uh, they just don't have polyatails, which right. is uh, the key to apply the, the current technologies. Uh, they also have very few uh, transcripts in their cells. But actually, the, the biggest challenge for RNA research uh, that uh, hasn't been overcome yet is uh, simple cell lysis. So the techniques that are employed in commercialized instruments, they, uh, they're not, the lysis techniques are not strong enough to crack open most microbes. Uh, there's a high diversity and many cell walls are quite thick and uh, sounds simple, but that's, uh, that's really the bottleneck. You mentioned that only a few percent of microbes can be cultivated in the lab. And I would imagine that some of the most interesting and exotic species from extreme environments are among the most difficult to culture and study. How is your lab using single cell genomics to study these challenging microbes? So I have multiple projects that I'm pursuing as a scientist and these projects employ in most cases uh, single cell genomics and that the expansion of the tree of life is uh, a focus of one of them. In terms of finding the kind of really novel major branches on the tree of life, uh, uh, gold Mine uh, is a gold mine. Right. <laughs> uh, we've been uh, 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 working with uh, uh, several groups of scientists who have established collaborations with the mining industry and uh, have access to samples from the deepest mines in the world, uh, gold and uh, platinum mines in South Africa, as well as some uh, uh, now abandoned uh, gold mines in South Dakota. And uh, these kind of subsurface environments, uh, both super deep and some uh, 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 just a few hundred feet below the surface, they turn out to be uh, really rich in uh, uh, yet uncharacterized branches of the tree of life. And I think the reasons are multiple. One simple reason is that uh, we are among the pioneers to get into these environments and uh, uh, figure out uh, what kind of microbes are there. So it's just a simple novelty of the environment. But I think there's also a biological evolutionary reason to have high diversity. Uh, I think that, you know, if you think about the, the history of the planet, uh, uh, which is four and a half billion years uh, long, uh, of these four and a half, uh, four billion years uh, are actually biological. So microbes, uh, it didn't take long for microbes to emerge and establish themselves, and uh, they had uh, many years to evolve and diversify. Over those four billion years, the geology and environment of Earth changed dramatically. So I imagine that microbes would have had to similarly evolve quite a lot. The environment changed a lot. We had all kinds of cataclysmic events, uh, you know, starting with meteorites and uh, potential supernovae in the neighborhood of solar system, uh, then getting into 
Snowball Earth, uh, which is a likely sta state of climate on Earth uh, uh, a few times during the history, where most of the ocean is not, if not all, was completely frozen. Uh, and actually, the most cataclysmic event was uh, oxygenation, so uh, filling the atmosphere with oxygen, which was completely toxic to all the organisms at the time. Using single-cell genomic approaches, is it possible to understand not only how microbes survive and evolve in the environment, but also how metabolic processes evolve within microbes? Yeah, so that's one of the main questions we are trying to address with single-cell genomic data. So one example is um, uh, one of the first uh, uh, major discoveries using single-cell genomics in our group was uh, uh, from deep ocean. So uh, most of the ocean actually is dark. If you just go uh, roughly 100 meters, there's not enough sunlight for photosynthesis, and right. that's 90% of the ocean volume. So it's a huge environment. Uh, we hardly have any cultures of microbes from that environment, but that's where 70% of the biomass of the ocean is. Uh, we can guess that these microbes are really important degrading organic material that sinks from the surface, all the algal uh, uh, biomass and the associated uh, secondary uh, production uh, participants. But uh, if you do carbon modeling in the ocean, it seems like there must be also carbon fixation going on and that it wasn't really clear how and who and would they get energy for that. So uh, maybe a decade ago, uh, the first group of organisms uh, who can fix carbon we discovered and those were archaea and uh, uh, they uh, appear to be oxi uh, oxidizing ammonium, so nitrifying uh, to gain the energy for the process. But if you, again, if you do modeling, there's not enough ammonium to fuel enough of carbon fixation to balance out the carbon. Um, and so by uh, uh, taking some deep water samples and applying our single-cell genomics pipeline on these samples, we obtained uh, very solid information that a very large fraction, like 30% uh, of all bacteria in the dark ocean, contain Rubisco. So Rubisco is an enzyme that's involved in carbon fixation, and it's usually found in plants and photosynthetic organisms. It's probably the most abundant enzyme on Earth, right? It's probably the most common uh, you know, among them. But these bugs, they live in complete darkness. No, they, there's no sunlight. So they have a gene for a photosynthetic enzyme that is critically important for photosynthesis, but they don't have access to any sunlight at all? Right. So uh, they, they have the capacity to fix carbon, but uh, the energy for that must be coming from something else. And again, looking at the genomic data from single cells, we found that the same taxonomic groups that have Rubisco, they also have pathways for sulfoxidation and for oxidation of some other chemicals. And the, the, uh, that's our current best guess where that energy comes from. Interesting. Well, the deep ocean is certainly a challenging environment for microbes. Uh, however, your single cell sequencing approaches have identified adaptations that microbes use to help them survive in this environment. Ramunas, I know that you and your group are currently involved in NASA's Mars 2020 mission. How is single-cell genomics going to help us to get to Mars? Yeah, so at, at this point, we, we're just involved uh, helping NASA to uh, better assess the potential uh, hitchhikers, microbial hitchhikers from Earth that may be carried over to Mars. 
and uh, uh, the idea there is to help us better understand what kind of how to interpret the data, how to interpret findings of potential findings of DNA in Martian samples if they would be brought back to Earth, and also to minimize the risks of uh, uh, bringing terrestrial microbes to Mars. Could single-cell genomics potentially help us determine if there is life on Mars or other planets? I think we uh, certainly could help in that. Uh, the sensitivity of technology is really pushing the limits. It's the ultimate sensitivity. We, we can work with an individual cell, and that's really where biology starts and where it ends in the, ca in the case of microbes. Uh, and uh, we can work with very dilute samples. So just from that purely uh, method sensitivity point of view, I think we have... Uh, uh, we could be of great use in these uh, questions. And that's, that's one of the reasons why NASA is interested in working with us uh, in the preparation for the mission, because we can d recover genetic information from very uh, desolate environments, at right. least we hope are desolate, which is the clean rooms uh, where the spacecraft uh, built. Coming back to planet Earth, it's clear that single-cell genomics approaches have expanded our understanding of the tree of life. How does this enhanced understanding of microbial diversity impact humans and our life on planet Earth? Yeah, uh, well, I think uh, it matters in many ways. So one is, uh, I think it humbles humans to, again, put us more in perspective of uh, what is uh, there beyond the human population. Uh, microbes have been around way, way uh, before humans, and uh, there are way more microbes than humans. and they are having a much greater impact on the planet than, than uh, all the big creatures, including humans. So the, what you call biogeochemical processes uh, pr are primarily driven by mi microorganisms. The oxygen that we breathe, at least half of that is produced by algae in the ocean. So without microbes, uh, uh, organic material would not be degrading, so it would be, uh, would be quickly filled up with the detritus from uh, all the biomass and the carbon cycle would be halted. Uh, nitrogen, uh, is, all the nitrogen in nature is fixed by microbes. There's not a single plant or animal who can do that. My last question comes back to the issue we discussed about the democratization of single-cell genomics. There are probably a lot of podcast listeners who might like to use single-cell genomics in their research, but they don't know how to get started. Do you have any advice for these investigators? My advice is to think practical, so you know what is the really the goal uh, of that person. If uh, the person wants to develop technology and infrastructure, then they should get into it. If they want to get results, just biological results, and not wait for that for years and not to spend millions of dollars, <laughs> they should take advantage of existing infrastructure. So uh, Bigel Lab, uh, Single Center Center is one of them. Uh, uh, Joint Genome Institute, uh, DOE uh, Institute is another place where that can be done. Thanks very much, Ramunas, for joining us on the Illumina Genomics Podcast. It was great talking with you. Thank you, Paul. Well, that's all for now. Be sure to follow our podcast so you won't miss any of our interviews with genomics experts. I'll be back next time with another interview on the Illumina Genomics Podcast. <laughs>